And we're back here on Unusual Sources, 93.3 CFMU-FM. We're broadcasting at 93.3 on the FM dial and to the rest of the world through our on-air broadcasting system live across the Internet at CFMU.ca. That's their new website, CFMU.ca. And we're privileged today to have with us human rights and labor rights lawyer Dan Kovalik, who teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Uh, Dan, thanks so much for being with us here on the program today. Thank you. I had just been mentioning before the program, of course, you are quite prolific and have written articles for a number of outlets, uh, Counterpunch, Huffington Post, um, and um, it's quite a lot you have to say about Venezuela having tracked the issue for some time now, and you're looking at it as a scholar, as a researcher, and as someone who studies uh, international human rights and, and law and intervention and all of those things. So I think you bring a really important perspective because what we seem to be seeing right now uh, in Canada and the U.S. is cooperation between the corporate media and the U.S. and Canadian governments in destabilizing Venezuela. Um, and, and people have been tracking the, the social movements and revolutionary movements there for some time. And they've had to struggle because, you know, the media here in Canada and the U.S., as you know, are rife with stories about Venezuelans suffering from privation, you know, like food shortages, consumer goods shortages, hyperinflation. And the suggestion is made that this is a problem of, of Venezuelans' own making. Uh, their left-wing turn has made goods and money just disappear. Uh, but what they don't talk about in the corporate media is the external interference in Venezuela's politics and its economic uh, system. In fact, uh, in articles you had been circulating, I read that Venezuela has been under not one, but five rounds of sanctions. So not just one or two, but a whole bunch of subsequent rounds of U.S.-directed economic sanctions. I'm wondering, what can you tell us about the nature of those sanctions? Well, while the you know U.S. government tries to claim that the sanctions are targeted at individual uh, you know uh, politicians or government leaders, they actually have the um, uh, consequence, and I believe it's an intended consequence of making life much harder uh, for the average Venezuelan. Um, these sanctions have, and especially the most the cur most current round, are definitely threatening the ability of Venezuela uh, to import food, to import medicines um, that are critical, um, you know, to people's livelihoods. And again, I think that that is uh, intended. Because uh, in the words of Kissinger, when he was talking about the Allende government that he wanted to overthrow, which he helped overthrow ultimately, he said he wanted to make the economy of Chile scream. And I think that is very uh, much what's happening with Venezuela, that they want to see uh, the Venezuelan uh, economy fail, and uh, they want to see people... Uh, lose faith in the current socialist government there, um, and I think that's that's all um, you know uh, what they're intending to do. You know, Mike Pompeo, who's the head of the CIA, recently said uh, in a moment of candor that you know the CIA wants regime change in Venezuela and that he's working with Colombia and Mexico uh, to help bring that about. You know, and and the sanctions are a means to try to do that. Yeah, what you said there with that 
that quote about making the economy scream, it reminds me of another quote from that period. Uh, certainly there's comparisons you can make aplenty to the Allende uh, government in Chile, which you know was overthrown with an internal coup and help from the United States. Uh, there was another quote from an establishment figure. He said something like, we can't let a country go socialist just because of the irresponsibility of its people. That was also Kissinger, by the way. There you go. <laughs> the same thing, yeah. He's just, he, um, that idea that you cannot let the democratic decision-making of uh, the popular classes in society affect the government and implement change, that it's up to the United States to determine what the governments in Latin America will look like. And so they're not scared to use these kind of measures. Uh, the sanctions, I mean, the sanctions are, it's like a weapon of war. We know how many people that killed in Iraq, half a million children alone admitted by the United States. So when you use sanctions, it's not a light tap that only hurts a few people. And Venezuela, it's a developing country in the global south. It's not an established industrial superpower. So it's it's dependent on exporting its raw materials, oil, and, and it's dependent on foreign currency transactions and access to foreign currency. So what sanctions do to a country like that is actually quite severe, isn't it? Well, yes. And right now, the newest round of san sanctions really is the most... Um, potentially devastating it is aimed at their oil um at their oil industry which as you say is their you know they almost uh is the lion's share of their economy um and so the new sanctions make it difficult to uh impossible for the uh, the state run oil co um company to get financing to get loans um to continue operating uh, for, you know, capital development, that sort of thing. Um, again, this is directly aimed at the economy because, again, most of the revenue Venezuela gets is from oil. But And by the way, that, the, that revenue has been cut greatly uh, in recent years because of the low oil prices, um, you know, which went from something like 130 bucks a barrel down at one point to $25 a barrel. Now it's somewhere around, I don't know, between 40 and $50 a barrel. Um, you can see it's a fraction of what it was at its height. And, and, you know, Venezuela under Chavez was very good at using the ample oil revenue for social projects, um, you know, to reduce poverty, to reduce extreme poverty, to build homes, to give free health care. And by the way, even after the collapse of the oil prices, um, the government under Maduro has strained to continue those programs. And in fact, 71% of their revenue is still going to social programs, but it's a lot less revenue. And the Venezuelans uh, believe very strongly that, that the low oil prices are not a uh, – they're not a uh, uh, an accident, that, that this is an intended um, – intended thing to put pressure on countries like Venezuela and Russia and Iran um, using Saudi Arabia to, to, to keep the prices down. Saudi Arabia has been unwilling to uh, decrease production to keep prices up, and they think that that is – they're doing so at the behest of the U.S. who wants to damage these other countries. Um, you know, and then the U.S. has done this uh, sort of thing before. But in any case, whatever the cause um, – the lower oil prices have already compromised Venezuela's economy, and now these sanctions uh, threaten it even more. And again, it's kind of amazing how Venezuela has prospered and survived even to this point, given all those um, pressures on it. 
uh, and the fact that they continue to build build homes for the poor, continue to um, provide subsidized food for people, continue to provide free health care for people. Um, it's pretty amazing, you know, but they're going to have to struggle more and more to be able to do that given given this latest round of sanctions. You know, that's a very good point you make, Dan. Um, it's about, number one, uh, a number of countries are feeling the bite from the low prices that the Saudis have been complicit in. And so it seems that number of countries that are on the bad side of the United States right now are, are all feeling the bite. So you have Venezuela, you have Russia, you have Iran. These are all countries that depend heavily on a, a higher oil price to be involved in, in government spending. And uh, and they're all feeling the, the pressure now. And uh, Venezuela very much so, as you said, it's, it's an enormous proportion of the economy. But despite that, they've been soldiering on with their social programs, their program of social and economic reform. And it's interesting you mention that because, I mean, how many other countries in South America would be able to stand up, even hold out with their government um, under these kind of sanctions? Never mind implement, um, you know, some kind of political and economic project uh, you know, as, as Venezuela continues to do. I mean, m most countries would probably just collapse if they're under sustained years. Well, well we know that very, <coughs> I'm sorry, very few of the, the left-wing governments that have been part of the Pink Tide, which uh, Chavez helped usher in um, at the beginning of, the, uh, of this century. Um, most of those governments are gone now. Um, there is a huge right-wing uh, backlash against these governments in Brazil, Argentina, um, Chile. Um, you know, and so Venezuela, certainly amongst the wealthier countries of South America, now stands alone. In, in continuing to try to um, to build socialism, and I think um, you know that's another thing. I mean, they're isolated; uh, they're really under a huge strain. And then, meanwhile, unfortunately, I feel that groups uh, in North America have a lot of groups have have not done enough to defend Venezuela, and some have seemed to have given up on it entirely at a time when they really need international solidarity. Um, a lot of what is happening, we mentioned Chile, and a lot of what is happening in Venezuela uh, right now was happening in Chile before um, the Pinochet coup in 1973. And, you know, um, we need to be cognizant of that and, and to try to prevent another Pinochet from coming to power. You know, the opposition, let's talk a little bit, bit about the nature of the opposition. Uh, a lot of the folks involved in the 2002 coup against Chavez, which the U.S. supported, um, a lot of those folks are, are leaders of the opposition now. Um, and we know what they did when they were in power for the three days they were before the poor came down from the mountains and and um, forced you're, you're them to... Sorry, uh, this is, it's exciting what you're bringing up. This is the coup, I think, right, in, in which uh, there was even a movie made about that. Yeah, 2002. Yeah, it was that, that long ago now. That was a big event because there was the military was involved. There was attempts to uh, control the movement of President Chavez or prevent him from moving. And they, they de facto ushered in a new government, which was immediately recognized by the U.S. government and the media at the time. That's right. And what did they do, this new opposition government, when they got in power? They immediately threw out the Constitution. They immediately disbanded the Supreme Court, immediately dis uh, disbanded the National Assembly. Uh, th these are not small-D Democrats. Um, meanwhile, um, 
you know, we talked about the U.S. sanctions hurting Venezuela. Meanwhile, um, you know, folks in the opposition um, who own some of the key businesses in Venezuela have themselves uh, been sabotaging uh, the economy and um, and really uh, people's livelihoods. I'll give you an example. There's actually a great article up on uh, Monthly Review um, on their website that talks about some of this. One of the big pharmaceutical companies that's supposed to import medicines has actually received more money from the government in recent years than they ever have, and yet have been importing less uh, drugs. Uh, same thing with uh, some of the big food companies. Um, and, it, and, and some of the members of the opposition have hoarded food, even burned food. And again, all of this is calculated to try to undermine the government, but again, by pressuring the people. And um, this is the nature of the opposition. You know, and the media tends to portray the opposition, frankly, as revolutionaries um, in the streets. And in fact, what they really are, counter-revolutionaries which is not a term you even here much anymore. You know, I always say, you know, when I was young, at least they had the decency to call them counter-revolutionaries or in Spanish contras, you know, in the case of Nicaragua. Now they portray these folks as the, you know, the ones trying to bring liberation to Venezuela, when in fact the opposition is trying to roll back years of progress and uh, restore the rich oligarchy uh, to power there. And that's what they're doing. Well, yeah, you know, people are so detached here in Canada and the United States that they've forgotten what a revolution is. And, it, and it's easy to sell people on some something in the media being a revolution. You know, what's happening in Venezuela, this Bolivarian project is arguably a revolution, and they're trying to overturn so many injustices and inequalities that exist within Venezuela and, and between Venezuela and the global north. And, you know, what, what's happening now, you're, you're alluding to, I mean, the, the big overall situation, which the media will never cover and, and doesn't discuss, which is that there's a conflict going on, which involves, on the one side, Venezuela, this Bolivarian project, and, and, and large numbers of people, uh, uh, ordinary people, working people in Venezuela. And on the other side, you've got the United States, but they also have people inside Venezuela who are, are determined to overturn the government by whatever means necessary, even if they represent a small minority. Well, that's right. That's right. And, and, and you know, what, what is happening in Venezuela is a class war. And, um, you know, it's clear to us who visited Venezuela and have studied it that on the one hand are the poor, the working people, indigenous people, Afro-Venezuelans, and they are folks who support the government. And then on the other side, you have, um, you know, the lighter skin, rich people, uh, you know, in the opposition. Now, obviously, you know, uh, that might not hold 100 percent of the time, but that's essentially the, the breakdown of who's on what side, you know, and I know what side I'm on uh, in that conflict, you know. I mean, when I was, I was struck by something. When I was, I, I was uh, election, an election observer in 2013 when uh, Maduro was elected president, and uh, we were taken to see rallies for both sides, um, both for the opposition and for, for uh, President Maduro. And what I was really uh, struck by when I visited the one for Maduro is that nearly every person I saw in that demonstration was black. These are people, the Afro-Venezuelans, 
that were an invisible people before Chavez took power in 1999. I, I shouldn't say take power. He was elected. And sometimes, you know, I, I've even heard on the news, they say, oh, Chavez, you know, came to power through a coup. It's not true. He was elected. And he was actually elected about 15 times over. Um, but in any case, and people will tell you this, that before the Chavista revolution, indigenous peoples, Afro-Venezuelans, uh, uh, were an invisible people. They were not recognized as people. And Chavez and the revolution changed that. And, the, and they are the core of, of, of the revolution. Uh, and that's why the opposition has at times been burning uh, uh, Afro-Venezuelans in the streets, burning them alive. This is a fact. Because they know if you're black, they're going to presume that you support Chavez. And it's probably – they're not too far off. Uh, because that those are people that the Chavez revolution helped. And again, this reality is obscured uh, intentionally by the mainstream media in North America. Um, and if people really knew that reality, again, I think it'd be easy for them to know which side they're on. Yes. And like a number of other U.S.-supported movements abroad, the Venezuelan opposition is very photogenic. They know how to present themselves to essentially white people and dominant majority people in the U.S. and Canada. You know, they dress up in hipster clothing and they have Instagram and, and Facebook photos of themselves throwing Molotov cocktails and it's all sexy and, and everything. And it neglects the fact that they are attacking hungry people and poor people who need a government that, you know, is responsive to their interests. So that, you know, that's going on. And by the way, for those just tuning in, we're speaking with Dan Kovalik. And uh, Dan in the United States, he's over at University of Pittsburgh, and uh, he's teaching uh, international human rights and involved in a number of causes and issues and writing for a number of publications. And, you know, just on this subject of Venezuela, I mean, you, you're talking about the opposition, and the opposition is not alone. It's not simply the case that you have um, a political opposition that sometimes mobilizes in the streets. There's a whole network supporting and backing them. And uh, I think some of the articles circulating talk about this, these non-governmental organizations. They're called NGOs, non-governmental organizations, but they're taking aid, funding, and direction from the U.S. government. I'm wondering, can you tell us about this relationship that exists between, you know, U.S. agencies like U.S. Agency for International Development and other government and state agencies and the networks of opposition in Venezuela? Yes, well, you have, um, you know, the prime one is the National Endowment for Democracy, which is a Reagan-era organization, which was created as a means of so-called soft power to bring about regime change. I mean, that's what it's about. And they, NED has been expending millions and millions of dollars um, to support various uh, um, so-called NGOs in um, Venezuela uh, who almost invariably support um, the opposition. And they also were very critical in supporting the coup in 2002. Uh, um, there's a number of great uh, articles uh, uh, written on this subject. Um, and so um, a lot of these groups in the opposition definitely uh, they're, you know, uh, have a lifeline to the U.S. And frankly, they're not particularly patriotic. That is, they are more loyal to the U.S. than they are to Venezuela and therefore are willing, in fact, you know, members of the opposition have supported the sanctions against Venezuela, even though it hurts their own people. Some have even called for military intervention, even though it would hurt their own people, because they're not loyal. 
uh, to Venezuela. You know, and again, the other interesting thing about Venezuela and I, that I learned um, in my travels there is that prior to Chavez's uh, being elected in 1999, Venezuela did not have a lot of national pride. Um, the reason being is they were sort of a banana republic, or more accurately in this case, an oil republic of the United States. And they, their national identity wasn't really strong. It, it was Chavez that actually imbued the people with that. And that's why, you know, he, you might remember he would wear the flag as a, uh, as a jacket, you know, and have the hat with the flag emblem. This didn't happen before Chavez. You know, now you see people proud about Venezuela, proud of their flag. Um, and again, the opposition is from the old days when, again, they were happy to just make money and, and really were not loyal to, to their own country, their own people. Um, so again, I think the current government needs to be supported as a a nationalist government, as a socialist government, um, and as an independent government um, who desperately wants independence from the United States in particular, which has dominated the whole region uh, for so many years. Um, and you know, folks who are interested in in human rights, people who are interested in national liberation really should do all they can to support Venezuela in that struggle. Well, uh, of course, it's not easy getting through the media blockade where they just talk about problems, they don't talk about causes, they don't talk about solutions beyond removing the government. Uh, given this extensive sanctions and political interference and so on it, by the United States, how is how do they justify this? I mean, you know, we know sanctions are highly damaging to a country like Venezuela. Uh, it's, it's putting a lot of strain on them. Uh, the, the corporate media, regular attacks on the government, uh, and so on. How, how is this justified in terms of U.S. policy? Well, they try to claim that it's because uh, the government is not democratic. And yet, as I said, you know, between Maduro and, and Chavez, you have folks who've been elected to office, again, my account is like 15, 16 times, because there were, in addition to the regular elections, the current constitution has a recall procedure too, which was used a number of times, and Chavez had to stand election a number of times um, uh, during these recalls. Um, uh, right now, the process that, that the, the U.S. is particularly uh, singled out is this constituent assembly process, which is permitted under the current constitution, and which is a process by which uh, uh, folks, 545 people, uh, were elected. They could run from any party or no party at all, uh, and they were elected to uh, look at uh, changing the constitution of uh, Venezuela, and then there will be a referendum later in which the whole populace can vote yay or nay on those constitutional changes. But the point is this constitutional convention, which is what we would probably call it, again has the potential for greater democracy because you have many very um, um, you know, uh, frankly, salt-of-the-earth people who've been elected to this who are going to get a chance uh, to have a say over their own constitution. Could you imagine, well, as an American, I can say I would love one of those uh, here. You know, we might get rid of the Electoral College. Uh, we might, you know, legalize marijuana nationally. There's a, we might engage in, you know, um, needed labor law reform. 
And of course, being, if you did that, yeah. it would be attacked by the same corporate media if you, if you tried to Exactly. Do you know, this is actually a potentially hyper-democratic move on their part. And so you know, the idea that the U.S. wants democracy in Venezuela is just a joke. Again, here's the same country that supported an illegal coup in 2002 against Chavez in which he was kidnapped. Yeah, no, I'm so glad um, you brought this all up because it, it's, as you said, it's actually r- ridiculous. If you're trying to come up with a, a reason to uh, intervene in Venezuela's politics, saying that Venezuela is not democratic or that the leadership is dictatorial is one of the dumbest things you could possibly say uh, because it's actually more democratic than most of the countries in this hemisphere. And as you point out, whenever they want to do something, you know, they, they, like creating a new constitutional convention or other things, not only do they have elections, but they have referendums and plebiscites. They've been engaging the population on every step of the way and mobilizing people and being in the streets, which is what, that's what a democracy actually looks like. So, you know, for the U.S. with its, you know, two-party, punto fijo system, you know, to, to complain about there being not, no democracy in Venezuela, you know, if Venezuela is not democratic, then no, nowhere else is, as someone said on the internet, right? Well, that's right. And we know Jimmy Carter said they have uh, the best electoral system in the world. And again, compare it to their next-door neighbor, Colombia that has paramilitaries haunting the countryside. The paramil- these right-wing paramilitaries in Colombia now control 74 out of about 250 municipalities. You know, it's a, it's a, you know some people call it a, a, a para-dictatorship. You have Honduras that is, you know, under a government that, that came to power through a coup that the U.S. supported and, and solidified. Again, the idea, the U.S. has no, let's face it, legitimacy to talk about. Uh, uh, spreading freedom and democracy, because again, the U.S. has a lot of catching up to do uh, in terms of its own freedom and democracy. You know, we have more prisoners in this country uh, per capita, as well as um, you know, just uh, number of prisoners than any country on earth. You know, um, this is hardly the land of the free. So, um, I, you know, I'm I'm quite. Um, um, I find it quite dubious, this, this claim that they want more democracy. In fact, they want less democracy, um, and they want countries that are a vassal of the United States, and, and Venezuela is unwilling to be that, and that's why they're being punished. Yes, you can see that pattern consistently in South America and other parts of the world where the U.S. is the biggest friend of dictatorships and is the sole force keeping them in power sometimes. And then it says it needs to intervene in Venezuela to promote democracy. I mean, you'd have to be walking upside down, you know, to believe that kind of thing. Um, But before we go, I, I know, I mean... We talked a little bit about Maduro, and, and, and you've talked about Chavez. I was in Venezuela for a brief period of time when Chavez was president, and you've been there more recently. Um, I, I haven't been able to follow Venezuela as closely in the last few years. And with the, the case of Maduro, it, it seems, as you pointed out, there's a, a support from the Western left, left-identified people. Uh, support has been dropping off for Venezuela, and you, you have people saying, well, you know, Chavez was great, and, you know, they had these programs, and it helped people, but, you know, I mean, Maduro's not as good, and there's too much corruption now, and they just, they don't, they're not as responsive to the, the movements, and so on. So, I mean, w- what's your take on that? Has Maduro just sort of thrown up his hands and given up on everything? Or? Yeah, not at all. Again, I think if he had, he, st- he wouldn't still be the president after four years now. Uh, over four years. Um, and again, I applaud him for hanging in there as long as he has, because again, what happened, first of all, he had the toughest job in the world. You know, he took over for Chavez after Chavez died. Chavez was this beloved 
charismatic figure, you know. He is a tough act to follow, if not impossible, you know. Be like following the the Rolling Stones at a concert, right? Um, so that he, first of all, just by definition, he was going to have a tougher uh, road to hoe. But meanwhile, then the oil prices collapse into his presidency. So you know, whereby Chavez had this, always had the option to to spend money. Uh, to get out of a crisis uh, because of the oil, Maduro has had less flexibility, much less in terms of that regard. Um, but nonetheless, he has soldiered on. He has tried to do creative things uh, to help the people and to uh, deepen the revolution. And I do believe this latest move to have this constituent assembly is part and parcel of that. Uh, I remind folks that uh, before getting into government, uh, Nicolas Maduro was a bus driver. He was a union bus driver. He's a real worker, and he's a real socialist, and he has been his whole life. And, uh, you know, I think his heart is definitely in the right place. You know, what you said about the bus driver, I mean, that, that really rubs some Venezuelans the wrong way, because I've, I've seen personally on Facebook, you know, members of the opposition who are often based here will intervene in Facebook conversations and say, you know, look at Venezuela as being misrun. You can't, you can't look at, they've got a, a bus driver for president, you know, as if, if you're a worker, you're a bus driver, you can't run for president. That being the president is reserved for a select group of people. You know, th when, when you actually have democracy and when ordinary people take government, of course, the, the rich become very unhappy and the United States becomes very unhappy and you have a fight on your hands. Uh, with the case of, of Maduro, I, I know there's, you know, a lot of lefty publications that are saying, well, you know, Venezuela didn't take the revolution all the way forward and that's why they're in trouble now or Venezuela didn't do this or didn't do that. And you can, you can, of course, say these things, but I mean, it's really up to them inside the country how they want to go forward. It's hard for us to to have any influence, and whether we know what what's best is very questionable. So, you know, I, it seems for people like you and me, I mean, living in, in the belly of the beast, uh, our primary job is to make sure that this kind of interference doesn't happen in the first place. Well, absolutely. And again, you know, I think some humility needs to be brought to bear here. You know, I can speak for myself. Um, I have never um, made a revolution um, myself. Uh, I'd say most people in North America have never never done that. You know, uh, it's easier said than done, especially when you're in a country like Venezuela, uh, you know, contending with the Colossus to the north. Um, and they're going to make their own mistakes. But also the other thing people need to have in mind, you can't have it both ways. You know, some people say, oh, they haven't deepened the revolution enough. What would that look like exactly? Um, and they also say, oh, and they're not democratic enough or whatever. But in fact, you know, uh, very few socialist governments uh, have ever survived without, frankly, um, taking more drastic measures against opposition forces, which Venezuela has been unwilling to do because they wanted to be democratic. They wanted to be benevolent. Um, um, and, and, and that's why if it looks like at times they're using half measures, it's because, uh, you know, they don't want to go the road, you know, the road of others like the Soviet Union or China did uh, or even Cuba did, um, which, which, you know, a lot of us support Cuba, including myself, you know, and, and they want a, different way, a very different path. And I think, you know, people have to take the good with the bad and applaud Venezuela for trying to do it this way because it is not easy. No, absolutely. I think it really boils down to respect. You know, as you pointed out, the Venezuelans, uh, 
This uh, popular Bolivarianism came about 10 years after the Soviet Union dismantled itself, and there wasn't a lot of legitimacy for those kind of ideas at the time. And they're saying, what is a socialism for the 21st century? What would that include? What would that not include? You have to sort of go ahead on trial and error. They're going to find out for themselves you know, what they have to do, and, and, and that's what it means to have sovereignty. That's what it means to have self-determination. You, you find your own way to do these things, and if you make mistakes, you recognize them and, and try to correct them, and that's really all you can do. And um, I, I think we can learn a lot from Venezuela, and, and people can study it and try to help out, and I think we also just need to make sure that they're able to function in more civilized and humane circumstances. No sanctions, no threat of military military intervention, no funding opposition networks, you know, inside Venezuela. There are things we can do here to ease the burden and make a, a more respect-based country there and have better relations between countries. And, and I know that, you know, that's the kind of track you're on, and, and I very much appreciate that. So I, I just wanted to thank you for giving us your take on that, because we really appreciate it and we really like it here, and, uh, and we want to see you uh, keep on going and writing articles about that, Dan. Well, thank you, and I really appreciate you giving me time to talk.